Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombus. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombus.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Today on Truth and Movies. Oscar hopefuls Melissa McCarthy and Richard E. Grant star in the true life forgery drama, Can You Ever Forgive Me? Maybe she didn't die. Maybe she just moved back to the suburbs. I was confused as to. From Korea, Lee Chang-dong's psychological thriller, Burning. And in Film Club, we pick through the ruins of many a man-baby's childhood as we revisit the 2016 comedy reboot, Ghostbusters. Oh, I don't have a cat. He's a dog. His name's my cat. Your dog's name is my cat? And Mike Hat. All coming up on Truth and Movies, a Little White Lies podcast. Ah, yes. It's cold outside, isn't it? It is <laughs> perishing. <laughs> Luckily, we're here in the warm studio. It's me, Michael Leader, as always, sitting across from David Jenkins, editor of Little White Lies. Uh, hey there. And Beth Webb. Welcome back, Beth. Droopy salutations, Michael, um, which is. <laughs> My favourite phrase from one of the films that we uh, are going to be reviewing we'll have today. To, to find out which as we go on, right? <laughs> yes. But before we do, David, do we have any other business up front from the Little White Lies Towers? Oh, right. The, from, from the wires. Um, yes, probably worth mentioning up top that um, my colleague Hannah has just yesterday has returned from the Sundance Film Festival in Park City, Utah, where she caught, I believe, 15 new unseen world premiere movies and has reviewed a large portion of them on right. our website and uh, having read most of them I think the one that she really loved was the new film by the British director Joanna Hogg mm. called The mm. Souvenir which stars Tilda Swinton and her daughter yeah. in the lead role Honor Swinton mm-hmm. so um, I'm super excited for when that makes its way to the UK and yeah. I get to see it I'm very excited too so a bunch of reviews there indeed she saw the um, Sheila LaBeouf film, didn't she? I'm really and, excited. Yeah, she say. saw Honey Boy as well, which is the El- Alma El Haral mm-hmm. directed like memoir written by Shia LaBeouf about his own childhood in which he plays his own father. Mm-hmm. So, yes. Maybe coming to a cinema near you, uh, if, a, <laughs> if a kind of a risk-taking distributor feels uh, a bit frisky. Mm-hmm. So. Well, maybe Sundance London, in which case that'd yeah. be a good chance to get it. Be really interested to see what comes over this yeah. year. Are there any coming to Netflix? Is uh, Buzzsaw chain? Wait, say Velvet Buzzsaw. Velvet Buzzsaw Velvet is Buzzsaw. coming to Netflix soon, right? Bu- this Buzzsaw. weekend, I think. Yeah. Yeah. Is Buzzsaw an Americanism? It must be. It doesn't slip into my day to day language, but then the why Texas would it? The Texas Buzzsaw Massacre. <laughs> yeah. Doesn't it quite have the same <laughs> no. punch, does it? Unless it means something completely different. I know. Is there a Buzzsaw chainsaw? Different. Yeah, we know. need a tree surgeon. <laughs> we need. <laughs> we need 
answers on a postcard. <laughs> <laughs> but speaking of reviews, we have this week's new releases to get through first. Yes. Uh, we have two great films to pick through this week, so let's crack on. Up first is Can You Ever Forgive Me? Melissa McCarthy stars as Lee Israel, an author who turns to crime when her career writing celebrity biographies dries up. Using her in-depth knowledge of the stars and her skillful way with a typewriter, Lee starts to forge personal letters from the likes of Noel Coward and Dorothy Parker and sells them to the dealers of 90s New York. Aiding her in this venture is local loose Jack Hawk, played by Richard E. Grant. It's Jack Hawk. Last time I saw you, thank you, we were both pleasantly pissed at some horrible book party. Am I right? Slowly flooding back to me. You're friends with um, Julia Steinberg? Yeah. She's not an agent anymore. She died. She did? Jesus, that's young. Maybe she didn't die. Maybe she just moved back to the suburbs. I was confused those two. That's right. She got married and had twins. Better to have died. Indeed. just come from having my teeth bleached. How do they look? Why would you do that? Oh, teeth are a dead giveaway. Okay. Did I buy you a drink? Even though you're the posh writer. Thank you. Craigie, yeah. top her up. Melissa McCarthy and Rich D. Grant there, both nominated for Oscars this coming month. Beth, are they deserving nominees? I think absolutely. It's just such a joy to watch these two performers create these two very feral souls and then just watch them meet and connect and evolve on screen. And they both look like they're just having the most fun. Mm. Even though Israel Lee is notoriously, I mean, I'm using air quotes, but unlikable. And she's kind of been used in a lot of think pieces about how there's kind of this new vein of unlikable women. But you can really tell that McCarthy's been kind of aching almost to really sink her teeth into to something as um, not damning I wouldn't say but something outside of her usual forte she usually just plays variations on very much the same character mm. whereas here she's playing this very reserved very bitter woman and then you've just got um, Richard E. Grant having the most fun of his life it feels like someone's just finally let the floodgates open and um, he plays this very kind of gaudy angular man with like bleached teeth and um, he has this great line in the film that a twinkly blue eyes and street smarts get you a long way and uh, I just think he's running with it if you get a chance to look at his um, his Oscar nomination reaction I implore you to because it's just the purest uh, there's some the weird business going moment. on at the moment with, with um, him announcing his lifelong love of Barbara Streisand <laughs> and getting her to respond to a tweet about how he sent her a letter when he was seven or something. And then posting a follow-up of him reading the it's response very, it's it. very, It's very lovey, and I can't tell if it's ironic lovey or straight down the line face value lovey. I think he means every single word. I think probably he does. Yes. He's such a fascinating actor and his career is fascinating as well. I think he's just come out the other side now where he was almost a joke. Maybe five, six years ago his main job was bouncing on hotel beds around the world because he did a, a TV series visiting the poshest hotels in the world. He would <laughs> pop up in you know, Spice World over the years well, and so the thing, on. I read a thing recently that Lena Dunham cast him in Girls. 
And that turned they liked him, him in, in Spice World. Mm-hmm. Okay. So. <laughs> but then Girls starts this chain reaction where he's in Girls, he's in Jackie a couple of years mm-hmm. ago, and now he's in films like this. He seems to have just been reappraised or reformed. I think people just realise that he is actually a very great old school actor. Mm-hmm. And he's just got this kind of presence. And, and he just brings it in space mm. to this film. And you feel it. He's, he's he's one of those supporting roles that just changes the energy of the film as soon as they walk on. Absolutely. Into a scene. But he is quite a big performance compared to Melissa McCarthy's much more restrained and hard to hard to like performance in a way. I uh, disagree with this hard to like. Thing. I'm, hard uh, to this like is, is it. She's well. been, as I say, she's been kind of pushed into this category of unlikable women. I guess because people are so used to seeing her in these comedies where she's loud and she's abrupt, whereas here she's very reserved. She's stripped down. But I think you're right. She's very defiant. She's angry. She's mm-hmm. she's livid and she's bitter. But she's also I'm I'm very compelled by her and completely understand. And there's a vulnerability to her as well, which I think is really compelling. Hmm. Compelling for you, though, David. You you gave this a very strong review in the magazine. You know, I actually didn't go to this with massively high expectations. It, it seemed like a bit sort of middle brow, mm-hmm. like Hollywood doing a slightly indie-ish, well-meaning drama of like real, you know, based on real people, real story. Lee is where it was actual memoir of these events. But I think the thing that intrigued me was the fact that it was directed by Mariel Heller, mm-hmm. who is an actor who has turned director. She made an amazing film called Diary of a Teenage Girl. It was another kind of, I went to not expecting much, but it was just so thoughtful and, and well-made that it was just really charmed me. And, this, and exactly the same thing happened with this film. I thought this was possibly her kind of director for hire gig, but it's it feels much more than that. Absolutely. Well, she was brought on quite late to the project. It went through a few directors, and then she already has a film ready for next year with Tom Hanks. But this... You know, everything looks like a director of high gig. It's not at all. It has that period texture. It's a different period to Diary of a Teenage Girl, which is late 60s San Francisco. This is early 90s New York. But you really feel it. This has got a few opening scenes where it's New York in, in winter when our protagonist is just being broken by the realities of living in the big city. And it's just I mean, some incredible scenes of New York that you've not seen I don't think ever. I'm a real sucker because this is like Efron's New York, which is uh-huh. something that I'm just a real sucker for. And um, it's very romantic. Like it is slowly, surely destroying the character that we're following. But there's just something about the the bookstores that she visits and the people that she encounters. And the fact that there are bookstores. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and, um, you know, they're eating club sandwiches that are big enough to be like a meal for two. And there's, you know, songs by Peggy Lee and Dina Washington and Dairy, my fave. Mm-hmm. Yeah, just this gorgeous soundtrack. And there's a really, my favourite scene in the film um, is when her and Jack visit a bar that has this really stunning drag queen performing a very sultry number. And Jack's at the bar buying drinks. And um, there's no other moment like it in the film. And she just closes her eyes and you see her kind of succumb to the city just mm-hmm. for like a, a flicker. And then she's she's back and she's angry and she's she's back, you know, to this hard shell. But you see her just succumb for this moment and for me that was like the making that's, of the film that's the kind of that's the moment where it's like okay I understand why she just doesn't pack up and leave and yeah. try something mm-hmm. new she's like you know magnetised almost it has this very sort of compelling story on on that kind of basic level and strong characters playing it out and you're waiting to see what happens but I think that it's just that there is so much more to it that it deals with in a in a kind of refreshingly light kind of way. Like I think there's so much subtext there mm-hmm. that it doesn't like force into your face, but it's mm. it's very kind of it's a film that kind of leaves it on the table for you to to sort of pick at. 
I think it's fascinating because it's what draws her to crime is that she's had this kind of moderate success with her celebrity biogs and um, she wants to do one on Fanny Bryce, mm-hmm. who is a kind of early comedian, like sort of 20s comedian. And um, she's basically being ignored by her agent. She's being told that there is no you know, commercial value in in that project and that she has to do something that's a bit more kind of that's going to sell books and she's kind of taunted by colleagues at parties who are you know who have sort of sold their soul a bit for money and success and they're all of a sudden the life of the party and everyone's talking to them and there is that kind of like quite an interesting bit of the film about how far you should follow your passions Mm -hmm. and like you know whether passion is actually the thing that makes the work good in the first place should we be forced to basically do things that we don't like mm-hmm. that we don't we have no interest in that we're not invested in just to sort of keep the wolf from the door but, but, but it's also something very contemporary where she's faced with this choice of how to monetize this passion she has this great deal of, of expertise she has in all these old stars that people aren't interested in in a biography but once you use that and cook up some scandalous correspondence to sell people are interested and you can make thousands of dollars it's true it is almost like the equivalent of like someone saying oh don't write a big book on it, but just do some tweets on it instead. Well, Set up a fake Twitter it. account. Yeah. yeah, and this is it's the question of whether you do things that you don't like or you yourself become likeable, which is what her agent... I forget who plays her agent. It's a great, great little part that mm-hmm. she's got. And I like that they go lengths to make sure she's not the villain. You completely understand their frustrations with her. But it's, it's this case of doing something that you don't like or become more likeable. That's very much at the core of it. Go out, publicise yourself, market yourself in a way that will make you sell books, that will get you more projects. It's very interesting and and sadly reigns true today to a massive degree, I think. One other element of it that I think is is, is fantastic that... Again, it's just sort of floated in there very subtly. Well, not, no, not too subtly, but it, you know, it is another plate that's being spun at the same time. Very well is this exploration of her sexuality mm-hmm. as well, mm-hmm. but in a very sort of non-overbearing way. You have her meeting with this woman from her past that she's clearly done something bad to, and has made angry, and they they had a relationship that no longer exists, which she's very kind of upset about, and the script doesn't fill in too much detail for you. It just lets you listen into what they're talking about in the present tense and it just lets you imagine what she's been through and what their relationship was. And conversely, she she has a relationship with one of the booksellers. Again, another amazing small role um, in the film by a British actor called Dolly Wells, mm-hmm. who I think is phenomenal. And uh, she just brings so much to this very like quite small incidental part there's a sequence where they sort of she sort of grudgingly is dragged out for a meal and it's an amazingly tense and and sweet encounter mm-hmm. that just has both actors i was thinking that, that you, you could almost watch a sort of my dinner with andre two hour <laughs> section of just these two actors sparring at a dinner table yeah. it was just it was just so amazingly what done my only qualm really with the film was is we get that she's married to Ben Falcone. I wish they start bringing Ben Falcone into Melissa McCarthy films because wow. it just draws you out of the the world building, mm-hmm. really, because you're just like, oh, you know, wink, that's uh, Ben Falcone there. He's playing one of the traders who buys yeah. the letters. The interesting thing is I read somewhere that he was in the in, attached to the project before Melissa McCarthy was because this was this is a film that's been going doing the rounds for oh, years. Oh, well, that makes more sense. It's interesting, <laughs> though, because, yes, they're, they're married. He directs films like Tammy that she's in or he always turns up in a small role. It's 
he in Ghostbusters? That's a good question. I don't think he is. I was keeping an eye out for him. But um, <laughs> no, I don't think he is. Oh, well, I guess that makes more sense if he was attached to the project before, but I just wish they'd stop doing it. Do you know what? I, I actually don't even know what he looks like, so I can't, I can't admit You'll know him if you see him. Just watch He's... any Melissa McCarthy mm-hmm. film and see the moment that probably doesn't belong there, but has been written in anyway. And I that's think he, he plays... The, there's, a, there's a scene halfway through where there's a book fair and someone points, don't go and sell to that one. He's a wrongan. And I think he, he's the wrongan. Right. Is, is he? Is that am I remembering I correctly? I think that's right. And then she visits him a few times. It, it's just it's just a little pointless, and for me, just kind of spoil the effect ever so slightly. I really did respond to this film. It's quite strong and powerful and rich, but it is a low key film that sort of coasts through a few different genres. And maybe the the anchor points, the hooks to come into this is it true crime? Is it a low key heist film within the publishing world? <laughs> is it the queer, the melancholic queer character study, etc.? In this Oscar season, it doesn't deliver on, on any large moments within those genres, would you say, David? I mean... It, and to its benefit, I think it, I think it, it definitely is low-key, but it is more that it deals with big subjects in a quite hushed mm-hmm. and sensible and non-hyperbolic way, which is kind of maybe why the film unfortunately didn't hasn't been nominated for a Best mm. Picture, because mm. it's, it's maybe a little bit too sensible. Mm-hmm. But for me, that's maybe the quality that I think pushes it above the competition. Mm-hmm. But it is up for the two performances and adapted screenplay, which is a, a great haul for a film like this, I think. Maybe one day a film like this could do better. But we'll see. One day. Um, but let's put some scores on this. Beth, I'll come to you first. In anticipation, enjoyment in retrospect. Sure. So in anticipation, it was a three. Just for those reasons, it's got so swallowed up by the Oscar race, which says nothing about the longevity of, of the effectiveness of it, but it just wasn't immediately in my line because of that, because I was like blinded by things like Roma and A Star is Born. For for me, it was a character study between the two kind of feral souls who have found each other and draw out these different characteristics in each other and a really fun performance from Richard E. Grant. I really hope he walks away with a, an Oscar at the very least. I think he deserves it the most. Mm. Um, and then four, I just haven't changed my mind on it since. It's just stayed there. I don't think necessarily Oscar wins will do it any favours, but then I think that's probably the best thing for it. I think, you know, you don't have to win an Oscar to be an astounding film that's probably going to have a, a more long-standing effect on me than mm-hmm. than any of the other films I've seen. Okay, David? Yeah, probably like, th- uh, I'd say fours across the board. Mm-hmm. I really liked um, Diary of a Teenage Girl, so I was excited to see what Marielle Heller did next. I think, you know, it's, it's like the highest possible four. Mm. I think to hit five, maybe the one thing that it's lacking is any kind of, I don't think it's offering anything new. Mm. It's, it's doing very kind of time-worn things, but just doing them very well. It feels like a kind of throwback to like, the sort of quality cinema of the 70s, like 70s Hollywood. But um, yeah, I'm super keen to see it again. Yeah, fours across the board for me. Maybe it is that sense that it's a little too low-key for its own good that's stopping it from being a five. But I, I can't wait to rewatch this outside of this Oscar race season. I, I, I'm a massive fan of Melissa McCarthy mm-hmm. as an actor, even in her kind of... You know more trashy Ben Falcone comedies. I mean, <laughs> I, I, I ride for Tammy. You love Tammy. I remember this. And, yeah. uh, and I'm also a massive Gilmore Girls fan. So that mm-hmm. was. The, the... Oh, don't get me started, David. <laughs> well, we'll have plenty of time to talk about Melissa McCarthy and Film Club, but we have another film before then. Up next, it's Burning.
based on a short story by Haruki Murakami. Burning tells the story of Jong Su, an aspiring writer who bumps into an old neighbor called Hei Mi. She asks him to look after her cat while she goes on holiday to Africa, and on her return, she brings with her a new friend, the slick, enigmatic rich kid Ben, who has a disturbing secret hobby. We don't have a clip for this one because it's in Korean. So, David, tell us a bit about this, about Lee Chang Dong, why we should care about Burning. We should care about Burning. I think mm-hmm. it's a pretty big film, really. Again, it's I guess similar to to Can You Forgive Me in a way in that it's on the surface it feels like a kind of low key, character driven, very classical, well made movie. But I think you know there are sort of still waters that run very deep in it. But it's about this slightly weird, not necessarily entirely likable guy. He's at a loose end. You know, you you describe him as an aspiring writer. He also works on his parents' farm. Mm -hmm. There's a certain kind of desire for some kind of upward mobility. He sees himself as a sort of budding intellectual and um, wants to kind of be able to break out of these kind of economic shackles, I guess. Yeah, he has this encounter with with this girl. You know, I don't think he can quite believe it's happening. It's one of those films that just starts on him walking down the street and her just saying, hey, you, let's talk. And it's like, wow, what this, it's just all down to this weird coincidence of bumping into someone in the street. You know, he's looking after her cat and they've actually started what he feels is a, a relationship, but it's very kind of ill-defined. So when she goes to Africa, he's left pining for her, thinking that, you know, is she my girlfriend? Mm-hmm. You know, I have to wait to find out. And then, yeah, the twist is that she comes back and... She's basically with the devil. I mean, uh, <laughs> I mean, you know, I mean, you may want to take different reads on this, but you have this character of um, Ben, yeah, played by Stephen Yoon, who is from The Walking Dead. I the think, Walking I Dead, yeah. He was also in Sorry to Bother You last year as well. Oh, right. Yeah, he's, he's crucially an American, Korean American actor now acting in a Korean movie. Yeah. And um, he, he symbolizes Jong Su's aspirations. Mm. You know, he, he's like, I want to be that guy. I want to have the sports car, the cool apartment. I want to look good. I want to have the freedom to do this stuff. And the film basically turns into this kind of almost Hitchcockian, very sort of strange, he sort of sets himself up as protector. There is a kind of twist and something happens which basically sets these two guys from different sides of the economic strata against each other. It's a slow burn film. But the second half is properly like, it's one of those you can't take your eyes off it. Every new scene makes the skin crawl mm-hmm. even more kind of intensely, I think. It's really something, isn't it? It's, it's a hard one to describe, but we talk about actors who completely change the energy of a movie when they walk onto the screen. Stephen Yeun in this, the moment he walks on, you want to punch him. There's something so smug so and smarmy and moneyed about that character. Because part Were you charmed, of, Beth? Part of what I liked about it is it's incredibly open to interpretation, and mm-hmm. I disagree with you both on this, <laughs> because I don't find him necessarily menacing. I don't see him as the devil. I find him incredibly elusive. I mean, within the film, they reference um, Gatsby, mm-hmm. which is great. I know that Gatsby's had a huge influence on Murakami. He translated Gatsby into Japanese. Okay. I completely agree. He's just operates on this completely different frequency and the performance is so minimal but he seems to take up so much space like as you say instantly from when you see him you know that that meme where it's like the one that she told you not to worry about and then it's <laughs> Stephen Young who's yeah. this like gorgeous kind of yeah Gatsby type who um, has this what he d- says himself is this superior DNA and he's just so 
elusive and mesmerizing and um, just constant state of amusement mm-hmm. and disregard. He seems so ineffective by things. But I don't think that necessarily makes him evil. I almost I think that he is like, you know, I think you can almost see him as like a projection. I mean, mm. like the, the, I think you could even sort of look at this film and say, does Ben even exist? Is he the kind of manifestation of... Like this, all this anxiety that, that he's felt is, about, you know, how can I be with this girl yeah. and not provide her, you know, not, you know, have this certain level of manliness. But to, then you could say the same thing about the girl, about Haimi, who um, is somebody who alleges that went to school with Zhang Su, so they have a past, only he can't remember it. And the only thing that she gives him is that he once said she was ugly. So that's the only... But she's since had plastic surgery, she's so... Had plastic surgery, yeah. Dan. They have one sexual encounter, which is actually really quite sweet and fumbly and very... Yeah, it's very sweet and weird, but not particularly significant. But he projects this huge thing onto her. He's the definition of... I used as Lucy Barrett, like the lonely boy, who has this big imagination. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> I wouldn't go that far. I wouldn't no, go no, that no, no. far. <laughs> <laughs> not all lonely boys are incels. Not all incels are lonely boys. He's, um, he's very insular. He lives on this farm by himself. It's very much about what it's like to be young in this area and broke and lonely and you know there's a dreamlike quality to it all but then reality comes a knock in there's the, you know footage of Trump on the screen he lives close enough where he can hear the propaganda announcements from North Korea mm-hmm. so it's a really interesting examination of, of youth at this time as well and so he's balling all these things up his dad's going to prison his mum abandoned him when he was little he's got this one tiny ray of light and he's grabbing onto it with everything he can and then he's got this uh, as you say this projection of what everything he aspires to mm-hmm. be and then it all takes a very mysterious turn but I mean I've been very fortunate to see it twice now and I've seen a completely different film both mm-hmm. times completely it's one of those films different. where you go with a group of four friends and you'll come back with four different readings there is that plot that's set up for the first maybe hour of the film and then there's a back hour and a half where it just unravels into this whole puzzling enigmatic freeform structure where you can come away with so many different ideas it's packed full of themes you know class struggle personal themes of of masculinity of uh, etc it's really but it something is, it isn't is, it I, I think what's what's kind of amazing about it is that it's a film that you can look at and think it's just a simple film about three people and a kind of what do you call it three-hander mm-hmm. you know it's it's about the relationships but on another level you can see it it's like oh it's a it's a metaphorical ghost story gosh yeah you know there is a plot point and it's kind of crucial where Jong-su has to go and feed her cat mm-hmm. and every time he goes to her flat to feed her he's eating the food but he never sees the cat he, and it's yeah. a one room apartment and it's a one room really apartment for the cat to hide. and and it's a small thing where you're even led to sort of ask is there even a cat? Is this some kind of long game? Is he being punked here? <laughs> but yeah, you know, it's like, I think there is a moment where you, you the cat can be seen like hidden in the oh. frame somewhere. Really? I like, couldn't see the cat. Did you freeze frame and zoom? No, I thought I could see the cat. But like, this, <laughs> Do, you know what? Do you see what I mean? The conversation the we're having now. This is now. the thing. It's like you're talking about things like, was there even a cat? You know? Yeah. I think that is maybe what makes Lee Chang Dong a really like special director. I mean, just to give a bit more information mm-hmm. on who he is, his last film, I think it was 2010, it was his film called Poetry. They had a film before that called Secret Sunshine. I think in the interim, he'd worked as like South Korean cultural attaché in the government and was actually quite high up in 
I think, building policy around the arts. So he is he he does have a kind of academic political background. He is a thinker, and you know, uh, I think his previous films have been more focused on a single character, mm-hmm. often female. They're very. It's basically about the awful things that happen to these vulnerable women, and this one I think feels a bit different for him. I mean, it's I think it's an amazing film about. If you have to boil it down to one thing, I think it's just it's a film about paranoia. Yes, it's almost like I'm going to sort of find the kind of the atomic particle that represents paranoia and to sort of try and concentrate it down. And anxiety. Mm. There are certain scenes... Or maybe it's the difference between paranoia and anxiety. That's yeah. what the film's about. Scenes where jong Su is hanging out with Ben and his you know, upper-class crew and knowing that you you don't belong or that they're talking almost a different language when they talk about cooking pasta and things like that. It's, oh gosh. But this film premiered at Cannes and I think this would make a really good triple bill, a very long triple bill with The Wild Pear Tree, yeah. the Turkish movie we reviewed a couple of months ago and Under the Silver Lake, which is coming out in March, which are all films about these young men of a certain age dealing with their own sorts of anxiety and paranoia. That it, sounds like a bit too much for me. <laughs> it would be seven hours long. That, that, yes, they're all two and a half hours of, of toxic masculine projection. The Lonely Boy for the lonely film boy festival. Oh, Thank you for bringing that term to our mind, Beth. <laughs> What's the difference between Lonely Boy and Sad Boy? Uh, you can tell me after. <laughs> boy, boy is spelled B-O-I. In every case, yes, clearly, okay. yes. But let's uh, put some numbers on this lonely boy here. Uh, David, I'll come to you first. I've only seen it once. So I'm going to say like four, five, five. Ooh. No, I'm going to say four, four, all fours. Ooh. But I'm pretty sure that I need to see it again. And, and I know that when I do, it'll probably be fives. Mm-hmm. Okay. Four for me initially. Just the Murakami and, and Lee Chang Dong for me is, is an absolute winner. And I'm really intrigued by Stephen Yeun. It's such a shame that after this, he's only got like a smattering of TV work coming oh, up. Really? But it's, he's only really had kind of bit parts before. He had that awful send off from The Walking Dead, which like put people off watching the show. And then he's had these kind of bit parts and then this incredible performance, like bookended by these other two incredible performances. The girl that plays uh, Hey Mai, she's a very yeah. new performer and brings such a, a beautiful kind of overwhelmed performance she's really wonderful in this um, you understand why both of them are kind of wrapped by her I think even though she's quite a normal person well she's quite broken mm-hmm. I think and you know they have this need well he has the need to fix her and make her better and, and mould her into what she wants and then Stephen Young for her it's just it's almost like entertainment it's like something to play with Chattel. Uh-huh. Yes. And then Five is based on the first view, and I, I will say that I was just absolutely bewitched by this. Mm-hmm. Um, and then to then go away and see it again and then to be equally bewitched and, and come away, as I say, seeing what I felt like was a completely different film is is really unique and, and such a triumph on behalf of everyone that, that made this film. Mm-hmm. It's forced across the board for me, but I think on rewatch this may go up it's really something and it's a shame we've talked about Oscar nominations this didn't get this, a nomination that, yeah, for Best Foreign Language yeah that was such a shame I, I imagine because Roma is in there as well that sort of blocked the space for them come on shoplifters is all I can say for, for that it would have been a bit of full can competition card apart yeah. from also the first film from South Korea to be nominated in the shortlist yeah yeah. Yeah. yeah yeah anyway that's Burning two very good films this week but next it's Film Club there's something strange in the neighbourhood something weird I don't look good, or does it? It's uh, Ghostbusters, the reboot. 
I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at uh1.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. The Ghostbusters are back in the news at the moment after the announcement that director Jason Reitman is going to have a run at a new reboot sequel. And with Melissa McCarthy and Kenny Forgive Me this week, we couldn't pass up the opportunity to revisit Paul Feig's all-female version of the paranormal comedy. From the off, this film tore the film world in half, fueling a first discourse right up to release in the summer of 2016, when despite making over $200 million at the box office, it was considered a costly bomb. McCarthy leads alongside her bridesmaids co-star Kristen Wiig, as well as Kate McKinnon and Leslie Jones as the four Ghostbusters. Answering the calls is their ditzy secretary, Kevin, played by Chris Hemsworth. Would it be okay if I bring my cat to work sometimes? Uh, He has major anxiety problems. You know what? I I would love to let your cat live here with you, but I have a pretty severe cat allergy. Oh, I don't have a cat. He's a dog. His name's my cat. Your your dog's name is my cat? And Mike Hat. Your dog's name is Mike. Last name Hat. His full name is Michael Hat. I can't say that I'm allergic to dogs, so... Yeah, that's right. He lives with my mom. Well, then we have that figured out. One down, no cat. So looking back, Ghostbusters 2016, away from the discourse... Uh, Beth, did you like this at the time? Were you revisiting it now? How does it stack up? So at the time, I thought I'd give it a chance. I'm mm-hmm. just generally not a fan of the, the female reboot because I hate women. I'm joking. Because uh, I am a much bigger fan of original material from these very talented people involved in this film mm-hmm. you know it was fine at the time I laughed a few times I didn't know much about Kate McKinnon and I came out loving Kate McKinnon after seeing this film but I feel like just any sparks that kind of amassed from the release of, of well since burnt out I think the comedy which at the time was still very fresh off the back of films like Bridesmaids and all the films that came from Bridesmaids you know that still kind of hung in the air and it was really fun to see this group of very talented comedic actors together but essentially what they were trying to do is take all the things that make Paul Feig and these these brilliant SNL kind of alumni great they kind of took it and just smulched it through this PG-13 sieve just tried to get it in there and essentially took all the fun out of it as a result like these are not PG-13 people these are people that make you know adult self-aware like really furious films Mm -hmm. and they've kind of had to muddle it down and make it into this family friendly franchise that's out to prove a lot of people wrong and it just tries too hard in the process. I've got to quote 
for you here. Candy Floss Cinema of the Highest Order. That was from Little White Lies, written by David Jenkins. David, <laughs> so you went to bat for this film. It's a weird one, because I think back in good old 2016, uh, if you can even remember that, <laughs> pre-Trump... The pre-Trump era, who remembers that? Pre-Brexit era. Pre-Brexit, yeah, yeah. crazy. I mean, this film almost was the kind of... It sort of signalled the alt-right as being more <laughs> uh, more than just this kind of weird, nebulous uh-huh. organisation. and like. So this was a sign of things to come, you're this saying? Was, I, think, I almost think, historically, it's, it's quite a sort of turning point film. It is the sort of... This was the kind of political correctness straw that broke the camel's back, really, in the eyes of these, you know awful, awful people. Mm -hmm. You know, there is this whole theory about allegedly throngs of people who were outraged by the fact that that this nostalgic childhood memory that had kind of forged their lives and their personalities had been kind of ruined and had the genders flipped, which apparently is the worst thing in the world. Mm -hmm. And and with that context in Mm -hmm. mind... It was hard then not to go to bat for this film. Mm-hmm. The desire for you to like look for the goodness in it, to not be like, well, maybe maybe the old writers were right after all. You know, I, 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 I think that, there's that, a middle that, to that, this. That so the, no, but that was the feeling for me. It was like yeah. it was capitulation or death. You know, mm-hmm. so, it, we we can't let them win. And I think there are there are times when you kind of do look at a film and you think. I want to like this. I really, really desperately want to like yeah. this, and I'm gonna and I'm gonna really look for for the good stuff, mm-hmm. and I'm gonna try and sweep away some of the more questionable material. It's interesting that you say that. Where there is a responsibility in a way uh, when when you're reviewing films like this, that you don't want your reviews to be used for political means by these toxic and hateful audiences that are seeking to do that. Like I suggest, as I think Beth's suggesting, that we could dislike the alt rights. Uh, man baby discourse but also think this is a bad film yeah. however if we were coming out at the time with one star reviews that could be appropriated as see we should never have made this film with an all female cast and this is unfortunately something that is tied to reboots I remember coming on here and talking about Ocean's 8 mm-hmm. and actually being a little bit sceptical about voicing some of my opinions because there was such an onslaught of by the way if you don't like this and you're a girl you're you're a bad feminist mm-hmm. you know what I mean it's a lesser form of what what was the case when this came out in 2016 oh god it's like the handmaid's tale but this is exactly it it comes with such a, a horrible social political context that you have to try and squash down when you're seeing this film so it's actually quite relaxing watching this now that the dust has settled and being able to say guilt free do you know what this actually isn't a very good film yeah, except I, for Chris Hemsworth you know I, I will say though in this instance it's quite a unique thing you know mm-hmm. like that I can recall that I've, I've sort of you know thought I'm going to try to go to bat for this mm-hmm. yeah it feels like I'm kind of teeing myself up as you know as the alt right would say social justice warrior mm-hmm. but, we need you, David. I'm glad you're here. <laughs> it's fantastic reading your review. You do come out swinging in that one. Is and it? as a person, you do say, as a person with a beard who did like the two Ghostbusters movies coming up, I, you know, I, uh, I, I felt oh, yeah, personally a, attacked by you there, David. There is a nice beard joke in there. Um, there are redeeming qualities to it. I will say, I'm not writing it off as a complete disaster. Like 
Kate McKinnon gets an amazing part where she gets to take down these baddies. And this was pre-Ragnarok Chris Hemsworth as well, mm-hmm. I think. So this was before we knew he could really be funny. So that was nice. I mean, as we heard from the clip, I mean, that was the best moment of the film for me when he's talking about my cat, mm-hmm. the dog. <laughs> and um, strangely, the stuff that really drags for me now on rewatch was every time it tried to tie itself to the older films. Oh, God, with the, the checklist of the cameo. There are sequences in the film where probably for 20 minutes straight there's a cameo or a callback or a soundtrack cue every two or three minutes. And it would be almost better if it was divorced from Mm. the old films. And I love those films and I'll even defend Ghostbusters 2, which is a bit of a lazy, cynical sequel. But this one, the fact that all those cameos are absolutely um, embarrassing I'll say that Bill Bill Murray I think Dan Aykroyd is the only one that comes out well a few of them get killed off and it's the best thing for him to Mm -hmm. be honest there's something to be said when you have a cameos list that includes Ozzy Osbourne and he's the least cringeworthy cameo (laughs) there's something to be said for that really but also it feels like this is almost the end of the upward rise for Paul Feig he had Bridesmaids Oscar nominated comedy following that with The Heat and Spy where he's a you, you know, applying that loose improvisational you know, female friendship themed yeah. comedy to genre movies then he's handed hundreds of millions of dollars to make this big spectacle and apparently his first cut for this was three or four hours long there's a whole dance sequence that you see in the end credits with Chris Hemsworth recreating um, almost a, a, it's a, a thriller isn't it it's, it's a Saturday Night Fever riff um, none of that end sequence makes any sense and I no. say that as somebody who you know, tw- you know kind of stroke my beard kind of way what I love about the Ghostbusters movies are that they're New York movies. They say something about the city there they exist in. This one was shot in Chicago and doesn't feel like New York one bit. And this final sequence where the big bad peels back the layers of history to recreate the pinnacle of New York history in the 1970s with posters for Taxi Driver and and everything just makes no sense to me. It's very rushed and it's it's also just not very funny. Like for some of the best comedic actresses Mm -hmm. that they have to offer again I think they're just smushing it through this sieve there's a sequence where they arrive at this scene where it's just carnage and Kate McKinnon says oh it looks like my kitchen and that's that's the gag mm-hmm. that's it it's just it falls so flat and it's such a that shame that was funny how you delivered that <laughs> that makes me think wow that's, that's actually a funny maybe line maybe it's quite good uh, but yeah Melissa McCarthy and Kristen Wiig in particular Kristen Wiig is somebody who can make me laugh by just a look when she's on talk shows in the States or she's delivering a Golden Globes you know handing out a Golden Globe award oh, she's so Farrell, funny. That was yeah. brilliant. Uh, but in this, I guess it's the marriage of supernatural big blockbuster spectacle with trying to, as you say, push through a sieve this female friendship. The huge concept of ghosts is just basically a metaphor or analogy through which we can explore the, a shared faith in a friendship. Yeah, because but then you that's all to... you know about them. That's another thing I didn't like. There's no backstory to these characters whatsoever apart from this central friendship, which makes me think perhaps they were withholding for a... Um, Oh, sequel which, which and, and, sadly just well I say sadly it's, it's not going to happen now post credit scene is pretty dire as well where I don't think I made it to that didn't make it to that where they're listening to the tapes that they were recording from one of the one of the scenes of, of a haunting and they say who's Zool oh, oh it's yeah. the big bad from the first film so the Ghostbusters reboot sequel that we never got would have had Zool in Okay. Anyway, well. the important thing to say, though, is that this film may not have performed at the box office. It may not be good on retrospect and it's going to be rebooted again. But that doesn't mean that the detractors won, does it, David? <laughs> mm, I don't know. I think maybe that Jason Reitman is now making it. You know, is he the right man for the job? It, <laughs> he's, he's never the right man for any job, frankly. I think he's made two or three good movies. Name them. I really like Young Adults. No. Wrong. Thank you for smoking. No. And um, and Juno's pretty good. No, wrong. Teenage Beth loved Juno. Teenage Beth had the Juno soundtrack and 
played the ukulele. And... Shall I up in the air? Up in the Air is the worst film ever made. <laughs> oh, worse than his other film, Men, Women and Children, which is the worst film no, ever made. No, I would say men, like... <laughs> I'm, I'm, not the per- I'm not the person to talk about how, Like One of our friends and collaborators, Adam Naiman, a Canadian writer, has said some wonderfully articulated things about how bad Up in the Air is and why it is. There was a podcast where he... He went off on this rant. I'm not. No, it's not a rant because it was too articulate for a rant. But it was this beautiful death by a thousand cuts takedown of Up in the Air, and uh, I was cheerleading from afar. <laughs> I think that he's just a, a perfectly mediocre filmmaker, like Paul Feig, like his father That's Ivan Reitman. That's what you to think. So, <laughs> do you know what? I I prefer oh. my ranking of the Ghostbusters. Oh yeah. Hear me out. Okay. Would be Ghostbusters 2016. <laughs> Ghostbusters, Ghostbusters 2. We're going to have to take this outside, David, I think. <laughs> scathing looks from across the pod room right now. Um, yeah. Blimey, Sleeves David. How, how can we even... Gosh. We'd better leave that there. I'm yes. feeling a bit uncomfortable, to be uh, honest. We'll have to cool off um, before we come back next week where we'll be discussing uh, Moonlight director Barry Jenkins' uh, James Baldwin adaptation If Beale Street Could Talk, as well as Boy Erased, starring Lucas Hedges and Nicole Kidman. And Film Club is yet to be announced, so uh, have a look at the Twitter account LW Lies or Truth and Movies to see what that will be, because we'd love to hear what you think. Of course, you can also email us at uh, truthandmovies at tclondon.com, and there's also the comments section at lwlies.com slash podcast. So, uh, David, I'm loath to look at you again, uh, mm-hmm. but uh, thank you for joining me today. It's always a pleasure. Thank you. Beth, thank you for at least being on my side a little bit there on <laughs> the Ghostbusters conversation. It's been a lively episode. Thank you. And thank you for listening. I've been Michael Leader, and as always, this has been a Seven Digital production. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.